I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. I remember as a kid, I would every summer come and spend, oh, maybe a week, maybe uh, on a really special occasion, two weeks with grandma and grandpa on the uh, family farm, just, uh, oh, maybe 25, 30 minutes from here. Uh, we have a Pella address. And, um, uh, there was always something about being there that was that was magical, you know, in the summertime. And, and what's interesting is it took us away from uh, video games. It took us away from TV. It took us away from, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, if you were if you had if you had a good life, you needed these amenities as a kid. Those were gone when you went to grandma and grandpa's. But yet they were always one of the best weeks. You know, you'd spend all this time outside. You'd be uh, using these old archaic tools with grandpa while you you know were fixing on something on the farm or you would, uh, you know, be out in the garden with grandma. And, you know, you were just doing all this stuff that you didn't normally do. And it was a lot of fun. And we could probably take this now into a super philosophical direction on how parenting should be done now, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but we won't we won't go that route. All right, Doctor Phil. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the things that we did while we were visiting is uh, we came out to the Neil Smith Wildlife Refuge, and um, we uh, drove around, uh, looked for the the bison. Of course, this was in like the dead of summer, so. Uh, you know, it's kind of like visiting the zoo at high noon in the summertime. Where are all the animals? <laughs> Wherever there's shade, that's where the animals are. <laughs> and and so uh, really the best time to come, I, I would say, and we could ask our guest, uh, Karen uh, Vista Sparkman, right? Visti. Or Visti Sparkman. Sparkman. Uh, we could ask her probably the best time to visit to see the critters. But I'm going to imagine it's probably during those the, those early morning hours and the late evening hours when it's cool and uh, those animals just like to move naturally at that time. But, but um, we drove through the park and I remember we got some brochure from the, you know, like, you know, some event that was being advertised um, that was coming up and my little brother. So I had two little brothers and one of, one of my brothers and I, we like, I think it was Luke, my middle brother, he stuck that brochure and in the back seat, my grandparents always had Oldsmobile cars. My grandpa would always buy them used off of somebody in town that he saw advertising in the paper. And uh, he'd always get an Olds 88 or an Olds uh, 98. You probably remember those, Carol. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had in the back seat an armrest that would fold down. And he stuck that paper in in the pocket, in the void there where that armrest folded down from in the middle seat. And then and shut that armrest back up on that thing. Well, part of the progression of Oldsmobiles in our family was my grandpa would buy one. He'd drive it for a few years, and then my parents would be about due for a new car, a new car, air quotes there. And uh, they'd, they'd go to grandpa and buy his, whichever was getting ready to be cycled out, Oldsmobile. 
And uh, I remember years later, where one of us pulled down that armrest, and here's this bright blue Neil Smith Prairie Days or whatever it was brochure. And because of that, whenever I think of Neil Smith, I think of that blue brochure, but it's always been etched in my mind that this prairie is here because we, uh, we have those memories. And I remember that was the first time I learned what, uh, what are they called? Cattle, cattle grates or something like that, where to keep the, to keep the bison and elk in the enclosure, you, you, and I, I just couldn't fathom that there's no fence here. They could just go anywhere. And then, you know, grandpa explained to me how that worked, but it's just a very formative memory for me coming out here and just, you know, marveling at the expansiveness of Prairie. And so then when I would learn about Prairie after that, I'd instantly have that association, which I think is probably when you think about the purpose for why this place exists, that's it, right? It, it, it educates people in that way and teaches them about something that's almost gone. But if you come here, you can, you can get a very real feel of what the prairie was. And so it's a great memory, but you probably were a part of that memory for me uh, because Karen's been here for quite a while. In fact, uh, you're talking about retirement here soon. Yeah. But uh, I've been here since 2006. Wow, 2006. That's yeah. awesome. And, and uh, that wouldn't have been because Kent was like 30 oh something when <laughs> 2006. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'll admit it probably was, uh, yeah, I'll admit it probably was before 2006, (laughs) Nick, but, uh, Nick was still in diapers in 2006. (laughs) That was my obligatory old age Kent joke. Yeah. But, uh, uh, so you've been here since 2006. Um, I mean, through that time, what has been, you know, some of the highlights of working here and what kind of drew you to Neil Smith? Wow. Um, there's been a lot. So I, I wanted to work here because of the, the whole mission of the refuge is to put back prairie where it used to be. So mm. most of the refuge was farmland when, when it became a refuge, which is different than how most national wildlife refuges uh, start out. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so um, just trying to restore the historic um, uh, tallgrass prairie and oak savannas that were here um so it's just a it's a challenge um but it's been pretty successful i mean it's never going to be the same as it used to be but Mm. what do you think are some of the biggest barriers of it not being the same as it used to be oh the biggest i think is invasive species there's so Mm. many plants that have been introduced here that that the ecosystem just can't handle Mm. uh they don't have the natural predators so they're just um that's they just kind of take over i was thinking about that the other day so pheasants came in they're introduced and they did just fine are there any plants that are introduced because every time i think of a plant that's not from here i think of it being invasive like uh Mm -hmm. certain kinds of thistles or um oh dandelions yeah i was gonna say we were talking about dandelions the other day and they certainly you know that's probably the most commonly known weed in mm-hmm. <laughs> in North America but to Nick's point do dandelions have like a real negative impact on prairie that you know of it's not huge i mean i'm sure they have some negative impact but they don't really take over in the tall grass prairie anyway because i think it's partly cuz they just don't get very tall mm-hmm. and so that the native yeah. plants can still get sunlight hmm. and that kind of thing so it's not it's not a 
not anything I worry about. There's other <laughs> other invasives that I really worry about, but that's yeah. Candy yeah. lines aren't that big a deal. Yeah, I, I love that point though about how, and I I was thinking of this too when we were driving up here, and, and Carol was talking about it yesterday. How originally in the plans, maybe you can kind of give us a little history here on Neil Smith. This was going to be kind of a nuclear power campus, right? My goodness, yeah. and those are yeah. those are very large. Those uh, the facility may only be you know so many acres itself, but you got to have. A, giant property around it the old blast right. radius yeah. <laughs> just in case yeah. yeah i don't know if it was that big but um yeah. they and they they need fresh water um mm-hmm. so the the water in walnut creek that goes through the refuge was one of the reasons they picked this site originally to be a nuclear power plant but and wow. that's and that's to cool the reactors right they got to yeah. constantly yeah. have water coming into those holding cells to, to cool the reactors but but um so that plan didn't happen. Carol kind of explained some of that. It, we should probably tell that part of the story because that's a very important step, right? Yeah. So um, what, what intercepted that plan? Um, well, the, the reason the power plant never happened, I think had to do with other events in the world and um, okay, yeah. nuclear power became very unpopular when um, like the, Three Mile Island, and then um, Chernobyl yeah. happened, and then you know, people just said, so what year "That's was that? dangerous." <laughs> what years was that 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 they had bought the land here for that? Well, I'm not sure. I think they bought it in the 70s. Was, the, the power company. Okay, um, and then the, the Three Mile Island that was on the East Coast somewhere, right? Was that was that kind yeah. of southeast? Was that like one of the Carolinas was, or isn't something? It in, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, okay. I'm not Pennsylvania. Totally sure I should know this. And then, and then Chernobyl, that was that was obviously over in Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah. And uh that's interesting. I never thought of that, but at that time people really were down on on nuclear power. And since then, kind of almost seen a recovery for nuclear power. Right. And I, I think most people probably view I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people view you know, we we need to do a whole podcast <laughs> on energy at some point, like how we power our grid. But nuclear power is kind of regarded as one of the more clean, like one of the cleaner, uh, believe it or not, ways of, of generating energy. But so it's interesting how that's ebbed and flowed. But the public didn't want that plant here then. Right. And so was the company just they they had purchased the land back in the 70s and then was this just a straight donation or did they sell it no to, they uh, they sold government? it yeah so the the new the power company owned the <laughs> land and they were just leasing it out for farming and then neil smith came along he was in congress and he had the idea he really wanted to have a national wildlife refuge that that was prairie and mm-hmm. so they were looking around for land that was already prairie well there isn't very much in iowa (laughs) Um, so um so then they were just looking for land that they could that could be restored to prairie and um this ended up being you know it was like three thousand acres that the power company owned that they were willing to sell so it was available and Mm -hmm. that was really why it got 
put here. <laughs> it could have, well, could have been somewhere else if somebody else had had the land, if they'd had the land available. Sure. Um, but you know, 3000 acres is a lot of land in Iowa and doesn't oh, yeah. come up for sale very often in right. that big a chunk. And Neil so. Smith, you know, being right here from Iowa in this community too, wasn't yeah, he from here he's, down the road? Yeah, he's pretty local here. That's yeah. awesome. Wow. And what a so. legacy for him. Obviously it's his namesake, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, talk about doing the right thing and <clears throat> and seeing the future benefit and impact of of making that move. That's just that's yeah. Just awesome. And his vision was really to um, to have a place where people could come and see what Iowa used to look like, and you know, just to yeah. to experience prairie and and yeah. the way he did it was a little different because he was on the appropriations committee, so usually. National Wildlife Refuges are go through a different channel to to become established, um, but this came because he appropriated the money. He he convinced everybody in Congress awesome. to, to, that this was a good a good thing to spend money on. So it it worked. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And and again, going back to your point of most most wildlife refuges are done in a okay. This is a beautiful pristine area. Let's let's preserve it. Right. This was a, let's rebuild it to what it yeah. once was. Mm-hmm. And that is very unique. I, I don't even know of another example of that. I'm sure there is somewhere in our country, but, but, uh, yeah. I was thinking earlier, I've thought this many times over the past couple months, I think since being at the botanical garden in Des Moines, I, I was talking up there and they have this giant picture kind of mosaic thing of rolling prairies. And I thought to myself, I have never seen one. Mm. I've literally never seen a rolling prairie. I mean, we have quote unquote, some of the biggest prairie acreage in one area, but we yeah. also have to grow it in monolithic culture. So it's, you know, um, and, and we've done huge projects for people where hundreds of acres, but usually they're spread out in different areas. And, and, so. when, and when we're doing the project, we're planning it. So we yeah, don't, so we don't, we don't always, see the, yeah. and, but I've, I've never seen a rolling prairie. I wonder how many people that are alive today have 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 their their eyes the view of their eye is all prairie well i i'm so glad you brought that up because i there was when karen was saying something i was like oh yeah i need to bring this up and then i forgot it and then uh you said that and it reminded me that is one of the things that i think is built into the greatness of neil smith is that they did go as big as they could with 3,000 acres. Because if this was a 300-acre prairie, that's great, but you don't get at all what Nick is is talking about unless it's in a very specific... There's a spot on one of our production farms, the Kniff Farm. When you go back there down the hill to, into the switchgrass because it's down in this valley there, and uh, you can... When that switchgrass is, is you know max height, and, you, and the wind's blowing just right. You can look out there and you can see all that grass kind of just swaying. And I took my parents when they were visiting down there last year. And that was a comment my dad made. He said, man, just sitting right here, you can almost sense what it was like on a prairie. But that's a, that was so much because of the topography. And like yeah. Nick said, that's you know, primarily one species. But here with 3,000 acres, you can... We actually have 6,000 acres now. 6,000, That was just the original piece that that they bought. And we have... um, That's awesome. We have the ability to expand up to 12,000 acres. Um, So we're still buying land when when people are willing to sell it. Um, Sure. And actually, Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation Mm -hmm. has been really 
a good partner working oh, with yeah. us because yeah. they're able to work a little faster than the federal government <laughs> when it comes to yeah. buying property. So, yep. so they've bought property and then held it for us until um, Fish and Wildlife. That is, yeah, fantastic. we really like the yeah. Natural Heritage Foundation. We've yeah. worked with them. And, fantastic. So, yeah. how, who funds that? Like, what when you're going to uh, the government or Congress? Like, who are you asking the money from? Um. Well, uh, we're we're in the Department of Interior, so okay. Congress, you know, Congress decides on the budget, and yep. then it goes down through the, to the different agencies from from the Department of Interior to the Fish and Wildlife Service, and yeah, um, yeah, we we can't. Yeah. <laughs> we don't usually go directly to Congress. Yeah, but yeah. We yeah. Get the money that's available. Karen, you're not like tr- on the floor. Down to us. <laughs> yeah. No, With all of Congress uh, listening. Well, I'm. You know, it's awesome though that, and I'm glad that you told us that it's been expanded like that, and the possibility yeah. of going to twelve. But what I was going to say is, when you come out here, you can get that feel for that mm-hmm. rolling prairie. There's, it's a big enough area where you know you drive in there, and and that's the other thing too is the way that the road system was engineered kind of tucks you in there and you can see you know the oak savannah area and you can see the 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 riparian you know bottom land along a probably it's probably walnut creek isn't yep. it that's running yeah. down there and and then just the hills of of prairie it's you can get that feeling mm-hmm. and it was designed that way yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's awesome idea. It, it really is and so. i think that's what helps get us connected to that mm-hmm. so i uh, imagine um you know part of that too is the education outreach probably get a lot of schools coming through here every yes. year. Um, yeah, it's, it, we have a f- pretty good, uh, environmental education program. I, I'm saying pretty good because we've lost some staff lately. So, uh-huh. I mean, it's not that we're not doing a good job. We just uh, don't have enough people to, to really, sure. um, host as many schools as we'd like to, but, um, we, we do have a lot of school groups that come through and, and yeah, a lot of, um, like we have an internship program and a lot of the, people who end up coming here as an intern remember this as when they were a kid in school and they came out here on a school field trip. So I run into a lot of people that remember it from their childhood. Mm, That's good. There, there's a few things I was talking to a friend the other day. There's a few things that should be like mandatory field trips. Like, (laughs) uh, like believe it or not, I think prison should be a mandatory field trip. Um, but (laughs) I think in Iowa or if you're in a prairie state, a mandatory field trip, and it should happen in September because the, the like right now it's a little more, you know, it's a little more brown with some green coming up. And when you're a kid that you don't care about that, what you need is the stark, like rolling prairie to make an emotional impact on you. But I think every school should, uh, or every class should have to do yeah. that if you're, because you, you got to know where you came from and, and why it matters. And, and, exactly. um, while, you know, it's a growing corn and beans is good. It's, it's like, why, why do we want to moderate certain things? And, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and, uh, you know, we talk about it all the time on the podcast, it helps build a connection to place and, and that's mm-hmm. when you value something and that's when it does, you know, if it does ever come up for, for uh, a fundraiser or, or maybe even something that's voted on for funding for either Neil Smith or something like Neil Smith elsewhere, maybe it's just county ground, um, or city ground too, you know, uh, then people are willing to, to let that happen. And I think that that that's part of the way forward. So you got far more than just the grass and the the oak trees and uh, you know the willows and and everything else growing in the riparian area. 
you got a lot of wildlife out here. Some, mm-hmm. Most of it, you kind of just allow to come in as, yep. as it would naturally <laughs> use prairie. But you also have a kind of a bison and elk. I don't know if operation is the right term there, but, but it's a, it's an aspect of coming to visit Neil Smith. You, Mm -hmm. you hope to see the bison and the elk. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, we have an 800 acre area that's fenced that has uh, the bison and elk in it. So we have right now we have 55 uh, bison and uh, adult bison, and we've got 12 calves so far. And then um, we have about 15 elk. So we don't have as many elk, but, um, and sure. they're, they're definitely harder to see. A lot of people come out here and say, I see the bison all the time, but I've never seen the elk. Um, they, they tend to stay hidden a little more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it so like, you know, 800 acres, that's a big area. Do you, I mean, you can see when you drive through, you can definitely see bison wallows and so forth, but is it a big enough area where like you see these animals doing their normal thing? Like, uh, during, uh, you know, August, September timeframe, do you start hearing the bull, oh, uh, yeah. elk bugling <laughs> uh-huh. and stuff like that? Yeah, we, we can hear that. I mean, sometimes right here from the visitor center in the morning That's when you come cool. in, you hear, hear the elk bugling down there. Oh. Yeah. Man. That's yes. wild. Do you, uh, do you find yourself ever just going to observe the animals just to hang out with them? Well, I, I, I don't get paid for that, but I do get to do, um, uh, we do a survey once a week just to check on them. Um, Mm -hmm. so I end up doing that actually. Um, it's, um, just to, to see how they're, to make sure everybody's accounted for. So we try to count them. Of course we don't usually get all of them, but we can kind of get an idea if, if anybody's missing. Um, so we can, you know, make sure they're not like injured. The, the bulls, um, both the bison and the elk, uh, will fight each other and they Mm -hmm. can get seriously injured and, and sometimes die from those injuries. So have you, have um, you had that happen before where they, where they, they really get into a big fight? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you kind of, I mean, that's, that's part of it though, too. You know, that's part of yeah, our prairie ecosystem. Yeah, that's part of nature. That's right. part of natural selection is, you know, yep. they're fighting it out for their, for the right to reproduce. So, yep. yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's fascinating to, to see that all happening right here in, in the middle of Iowa. And, yeah. and it would have been at one time too, both those species mm-hmm. were of course native here and, and uh, we'll talk about that here a little bit more. I, I did want to talk about the fame of one particular bison. <laughs> in fact, uh, I saw a little RIP Sparky <laughs> sign yeah. on, uh, on, uh, the fence leaving the enclosure area. Uh-huh. Can you tell the story of Sparky? Uh, okay. So Sparky was a bison. He did not have the name Sparky, uh, before this happened, but, um, <laughs> he was he, a bull that was out, you know, with the others and, I was out doing a bison survey uh, one day and I saw this bison that it looked like it had something on its back, like something had had spilled on it or something. I didn't know what it was. So I drove over. We just do that from our vehicles so we don't um, (laughs) get too close to them on foot. So they don't want to fight with Um, you, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I went over there. And and well, and the other thing is I always want to make sure they can get up. So I think he was actually lying down when I saw him. And I was like, well, is is he okay? Can he get up? So I drove over to where he was and um, saw that he was all it was just all bloody on his, on his hump. And, and then he stood up and I 
this time I immediately knew what had happened because it was charred. It was, so he was like black on his back. Um, mm. So he had been struck by lightning and um, yeah, he survived. And I didn't think he was going to survive very long mm-hmm. um, he, uh, because it was, it looked pretty bad. Um, we had had an elk that had been struck by lightning and survived for a few days that's why i recognized it Mm -hmm. um because then once it died then we were able to see oh it's it's because we we thought it was just injured somehow but you could see that it was actually charred skin so that one didn't make it but um so i wasn't sure if sparky was going to make and he did have a little bit of a, a limp after that I'm not sure if that was directly related to the lightning strike, but one of his mm. his back legs was had a big lump on it, and it was hard to uh, for him to walk. I mean, he could, he could walk and he could eat, and that's kind of our our gauge, and that's what that's what we're checking for. So mm-hmm. We don't want them to suffer. I don't know how much pain he was in, but um, he could walk and he could eat, and so he functioned okay. So we just watched him and we'd check on him every week, and then. Um, he was actually out there for quite a while. It was, it was about six months, I think. Um, and we would get people who were visiting call us and say, you got this bison that's got something wrong with it. And we go, oh yeah, we know, we know. And we just start calling him Sparky. Um, so we say, oh, that's just Sparky. <laughs> oh, no. It's okay. Um, he's okay. And then finally, um, I think what happened was we decided to just let the public know that so everybody would know that we're aware of this so we would stop getting all these phone calls about it. So we put on our Facebook page um, that this is Sparky. He got struck by lightning and he survived. And this was, yeah, like I said, I think it was about six months later. And then all of a sudden it went viral. Uh, He was on all kinds of social media. He made some of the you know news media in other states and you know, Sparky so. the Bison struck yeah. by lightning. Yeah, my I remember. Goodness. I remember reading an article about him in a magazine. Might have been Outdoor Iowa or something yeah, like that. Yeah, he, he became quite a celebrity. So, <laughs> so people would you know then everybody recognized him. And then people were coming out just to see Sparky. The, <laughs> the, our friends group has a has a nature store here, and they started selling T-shirts with Sparky on it. Um, so he, he survived for four years and then he finally died. And he was, I think when he died, he was about, um, 13 or 14. So he was, he was up there. Um, so I'm not sure how much the getting struck by lightning had to do with him finally dying, but he was, that was it for old Sparky. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You'll have to watch our uh, YouTube channel because Carol gives me the nickname Sparky uh, when we were uh, starting our... <laughs> Last our, week, I gave uh, Bert, Kent, Bert, Bert. He oh. could get the flint lighter oh, to, yeah. to spark. <laughs> Light the torch. Said, this is how you do it, Come on, Sparky. <laughs> Start calling him Sparky just to, just in hopes it would it would rub off on him. He'd be able to get it to light it a did. I got it every time after that. <laughs> we try not to name the bison. We try to like yeah. let people know these are wild animals. We don't name them. They're not pets or anything. But mm-hmm. it was just we would say the bison who got struck by lightning, and that's kind of a mouthful. So it was yeah. easier to say, "Oh, Sparky." Sparky. Um, no, it's a, so it's a great story, and and I'm glad Sparky was able to keep going for several years afterwards. And yeah. and uh, it's cool to see that it brought more people here. Mm-hmm. And 
um, you know, got more people interested in Neil Smith. So let's uh, kind of dive into the business here of Prairie. Okay. So if you're listening in, you haven't yet visited Neil Smith. It's it's summertime. It's time to get out here and do that. But uh, if you had to, so just kind of put on your, your biologist cap here and, and a prairie expert cap. If you had to explain what prairie was to an extraterrestrial being, so so uh we get we get a we get a you know message coming in from deep space and they want to know what prairie is all about how would you describe we've been listening to this prairie farm podcast podcast. deep space and we need to know what it is okay so they can understand english that's right yeah (laughs) so that part's all good okay okay. just want to make sure they've they've whittled it down to just we need to know what prairie is and um you were tasked with the job of describing prairie to, to these uh, extraterrestrial uh, beings. How would you uh, how would you just describe to them what prairie is like? Just like maybe your definition of it. Um, okay, well, uh, prairie is. Uh, <laughs> try to narrow it down. Um, so it's a it's an ecosystem. If they know what an ecosystem is. Um, sure. Uh, it's just a collection of the the plants and the animals and all the living things as well as the non-living things here. And the, the vegetation is dominated by grasses and forbs, which are non, non-woody plants that are flowering plants. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that's, that's the main vegetation that you see but it's also full of all kinds of living things both above ground and below ground the soil um, the plants have the deep roots and and there's a lot of things living in the soil that i'm not an expert at but from microbes to insects to um you know small mammals and and all Mm -hmm. kinds of things Mm. um so it's basically yeah just basically a grassland um, and, and what we have here is tall grass prairie. So there are certain, uh, of the, the taller grasses like big blue stem and Indian grass and switchgrass are the, are the dominant grasses in tall grass prairie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, that's, is that, that That's excellent. I think they're, I think they're, I think they're, they're good there. And, and, and I'm glad you brought up the, <clears throat> there's different types of prairie and most, mm-hmm. most of this uh, series we've been focusing on tall grass, but if you go out, especially out west, you start mm-hmm. seeing. Could, could you kind of describe some of those different prairie ecosystems that we see out out there? Yeah. Well, as you go further west, you get into the mixed grass, which has um, both tall and short grass, and then you get further west, and and it's short grass prairie. And when that, you say further west, how how far are you getting before you get to mixed grass? Uh, mixed grass. Well, even the less hills in Iowa are, mm. I think, mixed grass, and then in Nebraska, um, and then as you get further west, western Nebraska, Colorado, um, and up in the Dakotas, that's more short grass prairie. Sure. Um, and they get less. Veg, they get less rainfall, so that's part of the reason it's short, mm-hmm. short uh, prairie, um, and you know because of the rain shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So once it gets further east, the, the further east it gets, the more moisture there is. Uh, so we have the the tall grass prairie hmm. here because there's a lot of 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to learn about that, and even down into the southwest, down into yeah. like parts of East Texas, right, mm-hmm. and uh, um, New Mexico, and and uh, let's see what else is down there. Well, you mentioned Colorado, and our good friend uh, Laura Walter from the Tallgrass Prairie Center is an original mixed grass, short grass person oh, down okay. in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so just seeing that change, I think it's important that people can understand that prairie is not just diverse in where it exists, but throughout its range, there's, there's mm-hmm. great difference depending on where you are. And, and of course, uh, moisture and soil type right. play. And in. it's not just the height, it's the, you know, the different species that grow sure. in those different well, conditions. So I got a question then if it, and this is just for me, if, if, if you put 70% big blue stem Indian grass and switchgrass in a mix, if you're making a mix for a field, um, maybe a little bit, a little blue stem, a little bit of side oats grama, and then some forbs, uh, all the NRCS counties would tell us, Hey, these forbs aren't going to make it because big blue stem and switchgrass wound up crowding it out, maybe Indian grass. But so what do you say to that? Were there just way less forbs in this part of Iowa and further East than there were in, in the Western half or. Not from what I know, oh, okay. um, you know, and I, I don't know what was here. Yeah, um, nobody was here then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. There were people here, but they didn't. They weren't writing things down or studying right. the, the plants. But I mean, I think we we try to keep our mix that we're planting low. To keep the amount of grasses low because they will. Um, uh, kind of take over but mm. it's also managed through fire and and the the native americans who were here burned um burned the prairie regularly so mm-hmm. there might have been you know some places that were really grass dominated and and other places that were more hmm. diverse so can you see a difference where the buffaloes had grown? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The bison made a big difference too, by the, because they uh, prefer grasses over forbs in general, and so they will graze down the grasses, and that mm. actually helps the forbs by you know taking away that that competition. Wow. Um, so yeah, the, yeah, the bison have a lot to do with that. Um, yeah, I'm really glad Carol asked that question because yeah. that that goes to a conversation Carol and I were having, I think it was last week when I was asking Carol about some of the species that don't handle fire all that well. Some of the grass species like, uh, the rise. Um, so candle wild rye, Virginia wild rye, hairy wild rye. Um, also side oats, grama doesn't take it very yep, good. Yeah. Yep. Side oats, grama. And, uh, there's one June grass, a prairie June grass. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when we were talking, I, and this is kind of what we we were thinking was the fact that those species persisted despite that because you know when those when those prairie fires were going it was mm-hmm. you know as far as we can tell huge areas burning all at mm-hmm. once and you would think then with as regular as that was happening a lot of those species would pretty much disappear from the prairie but would it have been because of those large grazers getting, you know, seed stock in their buffalo mains and their, mm-hmm. their, you know, elk hair and, and, and deer, of course, are part of that. And then also all just a great number of birds that would have been on the prairie at that time. 
or is that how those species were able to continue on just because of the animal dispersal of those seeds? That probably has a lot to do with it. Yeah. And the, and the grazing, I mean, another thing about the grazing is the bison and, and I think elk too, but we have more bison than elk, even though historically in Iowa, there were more elk than bison. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the grazing, they tend to go back to the same spot and graze it uh, repeatedly until, you know, until it gets too tall. They, they prefer the shorter vegetation. So, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, they, they had the whole prairie to, to roam around right, in. Yeah. So they would be large herds and they would kind of um, move around. But after it's been grazed a lot, that also doesn't burn as intensely as if it was not grazed. So there's not as much duff there uh, to burn. So oh, okay. some of those pockets could be missed because of that. Also, you know, just, just wetter places where there was a seeps or, or that kind of thing. Yeah. So they're, they're... There's, an, there's an answer for one of Nick's questions he asked, Dr. Uh, Benedict. And I didn't even think that. I'm glad, I'm really glad you said that. Remember when you asked, how could all these like bison and elk and deer mm-hmm. and everything survive these prairie fires when they're you know there's nowhere to run yeah well now it makes sense they're already mowing it's kind of like if mm-hmm. you if you needed to if your back is up against the wall and you got to get your crp burned uh, by this date and it's super tall well mow it first and then your fire will be you know much more manageable and so there that's probably the main answer to that question, I would think. Yeah. They created their own firebreak around themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's, so, yeah. That's, yeah, that is so interesting. <laughs> that's fascinating. Because if you just like even sit and think about it for a little bit, you know, you would maybe come to that conclusion. But just being like, how do they survive? You know, because yeah. yeah. wildfires, question. especially, you know, if they're not burning every year, you know, let's say a fire breaks out on a prairie every four years back then i don't i have no idea what happened but if you get four years worth of biomass on switchgrass big blue mm. stem that's that's hot and uh, and fast you yeah. know that fire you can't outrun that yeah everyone's gonna be called sparky after that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i think i mean from what i've read the fires were probably more frequent than that if if really the, yeah sure. i mean you know Maybe not every year in a certain spot, but there was fire going on every year in the area. So maybe, you know, it, it, some some places might burn every year and others maybe every two or three uh, years, maybe longer. But um, sure. yeah. but by then there'd be quite a bit of fuel. So yeah, burning yeah. pretty yeah, easily. That's, I'm so glad you answered that question. I've been, yeah. I've, since Nick asked it, I've been thinking about that question at least a couple times a week. Yeah, he's actually lost through. hours of sleep. From, he's just <laughs> tossing it dirty. How That's did from, they make but it? But also, you know, the way a fire burns, it tends to be just, you know, in a prairie, it tends to be just a line of fire, and they, mm-hmm. can, they can also just jump over yeah, it or, yeah. you know, mm. just... Yeah, resilient. Apparently, they can get struck by lightning and yeah. be fine for years. So, yeah. pretty resilient. It's a little jump through the flames. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a great point and and very interesting to consider. And and uh, I think it's also important too. You know, when somebody has a so we we alluded to this earlier when we said this refuge is a reconstruction, mm-hmm. and certainly having the elk and bison closure helps with with this aspect, but. Um, you know, when people are putting in CRP, which is a wonderful thing, we, we fully support that. But it shows you the importance, too, of having a full network of, you know, the full ecosystem present 
to really have what was once here because you know there's not bison grazing on crp strips and there's not you know there's not elk there that are doing this and so people can start to lose some of that diversity in their crp plantings you know after 10 15 years you might go in there and not find hardly any of the wild rice or any of the uh, prairie june grass or the side oats grama because um uh, there's not you know you have to burn that's part of your program you know you're, you got to do those those burns every so often and you can start to see that diversity lost and had there been you know herd of bison around you'd probably still see those those species present and hmm. it's just important hmm. to to consider you know the the whole network and the the wildlife side of what makes a prairie healthy it's interesting, Karen, because earlier you were saying invasive species are such an issue because they they don't have the predators or natural balances. Mm-hmm. And for most prairie species, their balance, I feel like, is other prairie species. Mm-hmm. But then you get to, and it's kind of weird to talk like this, but you get to the top of the prairie species food chain, you get to like big blue stem and switchgrass, and there's not another plant besides a tree that's going to... It's gonna, so then you need a fauna. You need like a totally different branch yeah. of science to come in and and mitigate the big blue. That is fascinating. That is, yeah, it keeps it keeps everything in balance to have that whole ecosystem present, and you know, and it illustrates to the point of when here in Iowa, you know, we we hope in our lifetime to maybe see some in some parts of our state some free ranging large grazers like that again um there's a lot that's got to change before that can happen <laughs> yeah. a lot in our infrastructure and our highway and interstate systems but but uh it would be great to see that at some point and maybe start to see some you know maybe someday neil smith would have you know be able to be more like a yellowstone type model where just don't hit a bison while you're driving on the road please mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and uh but you know that there's a lot that has to change before we can get there but you know if if enough public opinion changes and and we demand that some of those things happen eventually that would that would be wonderful to see and kind of like nick talked about just bringing in that whole other branch of what makes this network work um would be would be so cool to see and and make the prairies healthier so Okay, so the other thing we want to focus on here is this time frame. We've already alluded to it a little bit before uh, European settlers were moving into these the, the prairie parts of our country, which the range of prairie is is huge. Uh, originally, there would have been some prairie even into like Kentucky and mm-hmm. uh, maybe even Virginia a little bit up into there, and maybe some Tennessee, maybe some there, and. And then all the way out to the places that we mentioned, I just learned recently all the way up into Oregon, there's, mm-hmm. there's prairie ecosystem. In fact, uh, the uh, uh, North American Grassland Conservation Act was proposed first by um, a senator or congressman uh, from Oregon. And uh, when I heard that, I was like, Wow, that you know that makes us look bad. They're not even a prairie state. And then the person I was telling that to was like, yep. "No, that's a prairie state." It's actually, <laughs> that's actually where I got my start. I, I oh, really? was working with prairies out in Oregon. Um, 
Yeah, before wow. I came here. Are they here, better? So. I'm a little bitter. Are they better no, than ours? No, not better. Just ah. different. Uh, <laughs> I'm it, really like... Is that a mixed grass prairie up there? It's it's not... It's just its own prairie. <laughs> okay. It's not like the short... The short uh, mixed and tall grass prairie are like in the, across the Midwest, but um, I was in the Willamette Valley and we just called it Willamette Valley Prairie. Okay. And there's some up in Northeastern Oregon too. What species, what grass species are dominant out there? They're all different than the ones we have here. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. yeah. Like there's a different species of Elemus um, than, mm-hmm. our, than our wild rice. It's, yeah. it's a different Elemus mm. there, different, you know, some of the same genera, but the different just different species every everything's different but but there's so many similarities too in the terms of this is that true with like little blue different uh varieties Uh, or yeah i don't think there's a little blue stem i was in alabama last september and there was there was like a a different strain of has has had a different little blue stem because i remember looking at it and be like that looks fuzzy like little blue stem. It's about the same height, but the plant doesn't look exactly the same. And then use the old phone, uh, take a picture and it'll, it'll I'd say about 70% of the time it's accurate. And, yeah. and it, it pulled up a bunch of different little blue, or I guess little blue stem. What's the scientific? It's just the, the same genus. But yeah. Species. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's impossible to say it. It's got like a C and or an S, a C and a Z in it. Yeah, yeah. Schizophrenia grass. I look at that stuff every single day. The names and and I have yet to. I know a few of them. They're starting to sink in. But there's people who been who have my position at other companies who have been doing it like 30 years, and they just can spout on they're not a scientist nothing they just know that they've just looked at the spreadsheets <laughs> the, the for years and years and years they just know them by now and oh man that's no. just the one that has eluded me i, I can't pronounce it so I'm... yeah well that, that's probably also why the oregon trail seems so long to the settlers like yeah. we're still in the prairie yeah. <laughs> they left in virginia they're, they're getting to oregon i know but... it's so funny that they drove through prairie to get i to know it a different prairie yeah and, to get to and, yeah. Yeah, and they, to to go to leave the best soil in the world <laughs> yeah, to go yeah. farm yeah. in Oregon. But anyways, <laughs> they should have brought their fishing pole and their chainsaw instead. Be a, <laughs> be more uh, prepared for that economy out there. But but uh, no, it's interesting to hear that and to hear that that native range is so wide and the mm-hmm. difference in the species there. Um, but the the amount of wildlife so the amount of wildlife closely follows two things habitat you know so as far as cover for the difference the changing seasons throughout the year you know and and uh, the, but also the food aspect of that would the numbers of bison elk even smaller critters like songbirds and and uh, insects is there, do we have any idea just like the number of those things that would have existed on, you know, virgin prairie. Um, I don't know if we're sure that like the, the birds and stuff. I mean, they're saying, they say like tens of millions of bison, but there's different estimates sure. of that. It's all just estimates based right. on, you know, what, how many somebody said they saw when they're um, coming through in 1840 or something. And then, um, yeah. So, no, nobody really knows. No, no, no set number, but yeah, I'm sure that, there were a lot more. That, I mean, when there was more prairie, there were obviously more, 
more animals sure, out here. Sure. So just uh, a lot more than what we had now, and and um, it, it would be uh, it'd be so so interesting to to really nail that down. I, I remember hearing a good quote. I can't remember who said it. I think it was. Um, I think it was when Teddy Roosevelt did his big uh, uh, Western hunt where he wanted to hunt a bison before they were gone. And uh, his, his uh, hunting guide, I think it was him who said this, and I can't remember that guy's name, um, but he said, we were never out of sight of a dead bison and never in sight of a living one. And, and that picture there, obviously that's a sad story, mm-hmm. but it shows you how many there were too. Like, yeah, there's a dead bison over there. There's a dead one over there. You know, you could, it kind of it gives you an idea, just the immensity of, of what that number would have been at that one time. And thankfully, you know, Teddy Roosevelt had a change of heart on that very hunt and uh, helped spark him into making, uh, you know, start, well, really creating the wildlife refuge system that we have in our country. And uh, in his last few months in office, I can't remember how many wildlife refuges and national forests and everything else he established uh, Mm -hmm. came out of that. And that was kind of the the starting point when he saw that, you know, whoa, we are losing this. Mm -hmm. And I imagine he saw that from the prairie standpoint too, you know, seeing all this ground that that was turned and, and so forth. But you know, most people think of of prairie as this this very diverse, um, you know, network, like a, a very homogenous mixture. You know, like if you were to cut out a, you know, one you know a, a one square meter chunk of prairie, you'd see one hundred species in there, and I think that that is certainly. Uh, part of it like in in different parts of the prairie but we were talking with a guy recently who spent a lot of time 33 years working out in a yellowstone park and uh part of his job he observed uh bison and he now is is a uh, a uh, bison i guess you'd say herdsman farmer um but uh he said that he would observe in the winter time bison going down into uh, kind of these marshier areas to get food and how sedges just dominated the, you know, these marshy areas it was like the only thing growing or not growing anymore, but, but at, you know, in the growing season would have been kind of the only thing growing there. Does that kind of illustrate what we believe virgin prairie would have been more like, you know, instead of the 100 species in one square meter, it'd be almost like a quilt instead where because this soil type is over here you know these 10 species do very well here and so you're going to see a lot of those 10 things here and down here it's really wet so you got your sedges and your swamp milkweed and your blue vervain and over here the ground is all tore up by buffalo and elk wallows so you see you know hoary vervain and other disturbed ground thriving species or would it been pretty much just the crazy species you know homogenous mixture of of grasses and flowers from everything i've read it's it was a mix 
I mean, you know, maybe not every square meter sure. was a mix. Um, and I just want to say about the sedges. So, you know, sedges will grow in wetter places. Mm-hmm. So what we have now is along the creek um, is not what it used to look like at all. You know, the trees coming in and the sure. erosion and stuff. So so the creeks were more of a shallow um you know sort of a wide shallow area with that that was wet with um sedges but but sedges are not just one species there's dozens of species of mm-hmm. sedges so you can sure. have a huge mix of sedges in there and there's also forbs that grow in those sedge meadows too mm-hmm. that are specific to that that um ecosystem the sedge meadow ecosystem so i i mean i from what my understanding, like I said, I wasn't there <laughs> to, sure. to see it historically, but I mean, there was, there's a lot of diversity and everything I've, I've read about it. So mm, um, sure. there was a huge amount of diversity. It's just, it might, you know, vary on the scale you're talking about, um, mm-hmm. the, you know, whether it was in, you know, like one square foot or one acre, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that kind of thing. And there, and there's probably in some certain species will form, you know, dense clumps because of mm-hmm. just their growth habit. Like if they spread a lot by sure, underground yeah, rhizomes, yeah. then they'll they'll form a big big patch. One of, of the it. reasons why we you know push diversity in a mix, I guess, is put a lot out there. And I always kind of thought about the theory that the the prairie will adjust itself to the soil types. Mm-hmm. And so they all might come up, but after four or five years, you know. Maybe some of them will be gone. Yeah. And I'm sure that was possibly the, the thing going on, you know, between the bottom wetlands and the upper hills where it, it just kind of tuned itself in mm-hmm. during, according to the, you know, the climate and the, and the soil types. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, I think those kinds of questions are so fun to ponder because it helps us in the mind's eye get that picture of, mm of what it may have looked like. And know? I I remember Doug Duran we when we were hanging out, we were talking about microclimates. And it was like mm. to the point where on one side of a hill you'd have all oh, these yeah. trees, the mm. other side of the hill, you know, south facing mm. versus yeah. north right, facing. Yeah. All sorts of things of like that. Sunlight and, and moisture yeah, you, and you see that in timber a lot. You know, yeah. you go into a forest and you can even feel the those thermal shifts. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, this is a cool little hole, you know, like temperature cool. It's like yeah just went down a couple degrees from when I was up there on, you know, a few steps back mm-hmm. and that those little micro, that's a great point, Nick. Yeah, yeah for the, sure. The wind direction. And, um, yeah. I do think it's fascinating how y- you were saying that creeks were different than we are. Cause mm. we do, we think of creeks as like, you know, dug in, you know, cause mm-hmm. all we've got all this tile, I've assigned yeah. that area to the water. The water will go <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yep. you dare leave your spot. <laughs> I mean, that's literally what we do. We spend, you know, uh, we spend millions and millions of dollars on on getting our water out of our fields and into very specific spots. Whereas it would have been a very slow moving, widespread. Um, yeah, can you kind of describe with a lot of meanders through it? So sure. It, it, just to slow down the, the the velocity of the yeah, water runoff, yeah. and that's what creates our big you know gullies and ditches nowadays because of the the load it has to take mm-hmm. all right. of a sudden. And if you see uh, Walnut Creek here, which is you know not a huge stream, but it's like at least ten feet deep, and and 
maybe 10 feet wide, maybe a little long, wider, but um, there's historic accounts of people driving their wagons across Walnut Creek, you know, horse and wagons. Well, you look at that creek. You'd never try to drive <laughs> yeah. a horse and wagon across okay, that I'm creek. So, I'm, I'm so. so glad you brought that up because Ken and I have talked about this a bunch yeah. of times. So, so you, that makes sense. So it was because these creeks were shallower and wider than mm-hmm. it was, it was a, some, it was a feasible yeah. feet to yeah. get across could, it could, yeah because yeah, i mean dropping that wagon we i mean you're gonna snap that wagon right in right. half going yeah, down yeah. that big <laughs> i don't know if the horse could make it either yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fascinating do you think yeah. there was a lot more like uh swamp bottomland as well as you know marshy areas yeah at so. that time too because that water was allowed to spread out more mm-hmm yeah i mean you know what we have was probably mostly uh sedge meadow i mean from what the descriptions we've read um from the the surveys that were original uh, general land office surveys um so sedge meadow but you know that can be if it it gets a little wetter there's there's more uh, you know it's kind of a gradient between sedge meadow and marsh sure Mm, that's that's interesting yeah because i mean the way we think of it, we think of it, there is water there and it is a pond or it is dry and you can drive across it, but it would not, it would have been a, a gradient. So there would have mm-hmm. been a lot of areas. I wonder if set, a lot of settlers were kind of like, well, that looks not too bad. We should probably mm-hmm. go take some steps in it to see how muddy it actually is, yeah. you know, cause it could actually, you know, look mm-hmm. drier than it is or, but I wonder how, what part the sedges played in it and holding, um, holding the ground together and, and stopping erosion. Cause we have sedges and they come, they come in pretty thick, but and they're like, they're, they're big and bushy they're clumpy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of a, a clump grass. Well, not a grass, a sedge, but mm-hmm. yeah. And they kept the, I mean, the whole hydrology was different underground. The, the water wasn't like, you know, drained off with the, with the tiles so that now the water table is so much lower and there, there was water just below the surface, even if it wasn't mm. on the mm. surface, cause the sedimentos might dry out, um, in the summer, but, um, but there'd be water just below the surface. So Karen, so. uh, so this was all agricultural ground before. Mm-hmm. What did the refuge do with all the tile line that the farmers put in? They take them all out? Or no, all? unfortunately. Um, That's hard to do. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to do. We have done a little bit of that, but um, yeah, mostly we've just planted right over it. And so we're not maintaining those tile lines. Um, they still do drain, Bubble up, up. drain a lot of the you water. Yeah, there's places where they, they kind of, yeah. So you're just hoping they they just decay fast enough and yeah, get out of that, there. That they can get well, filled in old, by roots or something what, what, or something. What do they like call last. that? Carol's it they call it clay bird tile, is that what it's called? Or red bird tile or something? The old oh, clay the, tile? Yeah, yeah those those things can break and Yeah, they yeah. break. But, yeah, but you know, then they pull the soil in and But their you know, their life is pretty long underneath the soil surface because yeah. it doesn't have the sun to deteriorate them and then sure. they put in plastic tiles yeah. above that too yeah. so some of their you know okay. there might be old i mean there's places we can see more than one layer i don't think plastic tile. tile come out maybe late 60s and 70s or so 
Yeah, so probably they probably yeah. tiled it right before you guys got yeah. it. Yeah, um, there there were some that they uh, tiled right before we bought the yeah, land. That's, that's too like bad. A... <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. that reminds me of uh, when we interviewed uh, Russell Kurt, and he talked about how right before he bought his ground to put in his prairie, the guy had seeded it into red clover and brome, wasn't oh, it? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so right before he he gets it to convert, it. but to his credit, he's pretty much eliminated that stuff from that prairie. Yeah, just a little but, on the fringes. It was it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a really good job. Yeah. You know, n- another thing that I think, you know, two very small things that we, we definitely need to include in this description of original prairie is what's going on in the soil, but also the insects. Um, it was uh, heartbreaking for me when I learned that honeybees are not native to, <laughs> to, to a North America. Yeah, They're yeah, a Eurasian yeah. species. Now, we have a lot of our own bee species that are mm-hmm. native to, yeah. to America, but... But uh, the honeybees are not, correct? Right. Yep. Those were brought in. But that would honey. be an example of one of those non-native species that Nicholas was mm-hmm. talking about earlier that we're happy to have. And they they serve a valuable role now in, in uh, helping pollinate our remaining Yeah. Birds. I mean, if there weren't honeybees here, the, the native bees would do the job. But, you know. I heard that dandelions are good for honeybees but they're not actually good for our native bees i don't i don't know i heard uh native habitat project um kyle larbarger Lybarger. Lybarger. Yeah. he uh he was saying that i don't know how true that is but he seems like a fairly informed guy well i mean if it, yeah. if they're both from eurasia originally which i believe they are mm-hmm. that would make sense that they would have that relationship already yeah i mean the problem is everything is so uh altered from what yeah, it was yeah. historically so you know there are some early um, bees native bees that are out looking for food and dandelions are blooming so i think they'll, they'll use them some but mm. but you know before dandelions and before honeybees there were plenty of native yeah. plants yeah. that were blooming at that time um so it's just it's all especially you know in town there's there's not a whole lot of native wildflowers yeah. in in cities um but there's plenty get your of backyard pollinator get your backyard <laughs> yeah. pollinator guys so, yeah, so yeah. is the difference in consideration between honeybees and native bees is it just that honeybees exist in these large colonies whereas the native bee species are they more like they live in holes in the ground or in a tree or and they aren't so so communal is that is that kind of the difference there? yeah for the most part most of the native bees are more solitary um there's some social uh bees too but not as not as much as honeybees um yeah and i i just want to correct myself because i said the native bees would do the job but you know they would do the job in native uh, pollinating native plants, but with these monocultures of crops we yeah. grow, you know, like the, the fruit orchards and stuff yes. like that, that, yeah, there's probably not as many of the native bees that mm-hmm. would be available in those areas. So that's why they bring in the, the beehives. So, so they do serve that purpose. And of course you get honey from them. So yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. That's we love that. We, we <laughs> Big have, fan. Uh, yeah. We have several, um, uh, I guess you'd say colonies on our production fields that, come out and they help pollinate our prairies but we see a lot of native bees out there too Mm -hmm. that um i wish everybody listening to this podcast could have been in our uh, rough blazing star field last Uh, what was that august carol yeah late august i think yeah the i mean it just sounded like a motor was drumming in the background in there purple prairie clover used to be that way yeah it was we we had a field really thick field like 10 years ago and it was like a you would pass it by 
and it sounded like the static on a on a uh, television. You remember that, Dad? Oh, oh yeah, right by the road. I couldn't you, get guys to walk out there to weed. No, it. It, it, it I'm was, not going out there. <laughs> no, it was like, you know, you're like I don't, they sound angry. It's like, I just, I find if you just keep moving fast enough, yeah, they no, they don't, they don't leave you alone. You. They, they kind of no. sense that you're there to help. I think. One time ever, a bee got stuck in my glove. And that was the only time I ever got stung on our on our farm. I've been mm. stung a bunch, but on our farm, not. Yeah. But the rough blazing star, it also had all sorts of butterflies. Uh, yeah. Was that eastern tiger swallow? Um, yeah, the, which is actually our uh, yeah, it's our logo, our for logo the for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, you know, monarchs all over the place. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, a lot more of those pollinating species mm-hmm. that would have been around at one at one yeah. time. And then they, we've oh. had um, we've had done some bee surveys here at Neil Smith, and just you know, kind of casual. Um, we we went out and netted them, and also put out little bee bowl traps for, okay, for yeah. bees, and sent them off to an expert to identify. So we've had more than 150 species of bees wow. identified here, wow. and that was just you know, there's probably more. How yeah. many? Uh, almost all native, or how many of those would um, be native? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's the honeybee and uh, maybe something else that's not native, but almost all native. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. That's that's yeah. really awesome. And uh, of course, you know, butterflies and moths. And then there's Mm -hmm. also uh, some bird species that serve as as pollinators. Do you know any of those off the top? Uh, Mostly hummingbirds. Um, Mostly hummingbirds. Yeah, because they'll they'll feed on the nectar and they're pollinating at the same time. Do you know of bats? I know bats like down in Southwest and some of the cactus species. And I think there's another flower species that kind of almost has like a a pitcher or bowl structure Mm -hmm. to it. And these bats, I mean, Look this up if you're listening to this. Yeah. There's there's like a planet Earth or something that features this relationship where these bats have these incredibly long tongues that are designed specifically for this one flowering species that holds, I think it holds water in that bowl for them. They'll reach their tongue down in there and, and get some water. But while doing that, the hairs on the bat um, pick up all kinds of pollen that and it's got this pollen, pollen. Uh, what is that? A stamen that hangs over this pitcher uh, on this plant that just dusts pollen all over the back of this bat while he's getting his drink, and then he flies over the next flower and does the same thing, and then drops all that pollen off for. Mm-hmm. There's just a fascinating relationship there, uh, uh, right. symbiotic relationship. But, but um, in tall grass prairie, were bats ever documented uh, to be I don't think a we pollinating have, species? I don't think we have pollinating bats here sure. in Iowa. We but, just have the uh, bats that like to get into your house, and then you're not allowed to. <laughs> bats are important, Nick. I yes. like bats. I like them better outside of my house. And my wife, my goodness, she's not a fan. That would, you know, that would be a good episode to, to talk to a, a bat specialist because bats are not doing well. Uh, pretty no, much dude, anywhere. they're going to try and have you. Pet the bat. I can't do that, man. You're going to have to go to that one on your own. Uh, the, the white nose syndrome that's really hard on bats is, yeah. is cutting their numbers big time. And the what? White nose syndrome. It's a fungus that they develop in there. Huh. And it kind of suffocates them, I think, if I oh. understand it correctly. That's sad. Yeah. And, uh, but, but anyways, it's interesting to learn about that. So most pollinators in, in prairie are going to be the insect species, the, the bees yeah. and butterflies and moths. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really, really interesting. Okay, so the soil, imagine the soil quality for original prairie was just unbelievably good. Those first people that were putting a till to the ground, 
probably had, you know, as long as they could survive hailstorms and fires and everything else and <laughs> grazing from bison. Walking Blizzards through the, in the winter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they probably had pretty incredible, uh, you know, yields off that untouched soil, right? With, with the nutrient level and then also the microbial life in that soil, just mm-hmm. a totally different soil quality than now, right? Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, it was untouched. So, yeah, all the nutrients were there and just just ready to. Another thing I hear about that is just so hard to picture is the depth of that topsoil. Mm-hmm. So would it, you hear like 10, 12 feet of topsoil. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, literally, if somebody was taking a shovel at that time and they were digging down, it would be black dirt that far. That's yeah. That's crazy. And so since then, it's just eroded off, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just, you know, like we were talking about the drain tiles um, that were put in helped speed up the erosion um, and just, you know, clearing all that vegetation and having exposed soil. um, So, yeah, a lot of erosion and a lot of that ended up down in the in the creek bottoms. And so the early day, early prairies, you know, like picture during the winter when you get these hard blowing blizzards you know right. mm-hmm. uh that prairie grasses would hold the snow and today's fields you know it's mm-hmm. all around the homesteads or in the ditch yeah and those mm-hmm. fields are open you know yeah. they don't have much mm-hmm. snow out there after a blizzard <laughs> yeah and so that helps build uh, the moisture that the prairie needs by oh, keeping yeah. it all That's there point. and rather than have it all channeled over here and then that all has an effect on the runoff, the, the rate of runoff of the it's water to our streams. Hmm. Yeah. So that's a great point. I never thought of that. The the grasses would trap the snow to then gradually melt into the mm-hmm. rebuild that water that subterranean yeah. water table. That's. I mean, our this past winter after it snowed in the ditches, it was real quick before those ditches, those uh, those snow uh, banks were black, you know, or brown yeah. at least. Yeah. Topsoil blasting them, yeah. yeah. So, so totally different place though at that time, and and um, then of course uh, after settlement, immediately started seeing these things: the wildlife numbers drop, insect numbers drop, of course the prairie grasses and forbs their, their counts were going down uh, any idea of of how quickly that impact was was felt by prairies um well it probably started getting felt right away but i i read one uh, description is basically the lifetime of one person so like 70 years from mm-hmm. the time of settlement until until prairie was almost gone really Iowa. yeah whoa i didn't so, realize it was that fast um yeah 70 years. Man. So we could probably go around this room right now and trace back, you know, a grand or a great grandparent or great great grandparent who would have seen a lot of prairie and then by the end of their life, almost done. Right. That's, yeah. That's, that's, that's insane. That's fascinating. It's interesting because the, the prairie, um, the roots are so deep and they did not have big old you know, tilling tractors, you know, mm-hmm. these 12 million horsepower tractors that would, <laughs> that would, you know, do like six acres in two seconds. And but they had a lot of farmers. Though. They had yeah, a lot that's of right. farmers. Right. So that's, they, right. I, that's what I was saying. Imagine the man hours put right. behind pulling. I mean, 
every single, I, I, I guess I don't know about you, Karen, but all three of us have dug out big blue stem. Oh. That's only a year or two old. You can imagine what, you know, big blue stem that's 200 years old trying to dig those roots out. Oh right. man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why the the steel plow when that was invented yeah. that was a big and for game years they had to deal with that root ball of the big blue stem you know yeah. it don't go yeah. away in one year you mean the the, the yeah. old root is there yeah and, yeah and you I, turn that over and you got to fight that big old clump every that's right two or three years yeah. Yeah. yeah I was I was gonna do a feature on one of our coffee time Wednesday episodes on uh, the history of Kentucky bluegrass. Because with a name like that, what could be more American? But in reality, it's a European grass. And it was exactly what Carol just talked about. When they when those settlers started clearing the land, they they had no interest in reseeding it into native grasses because they just, you know, dad and grandpa just worked their tail off to get rid of the stuff. So they planted those shallow root turf grasses like Kentucky blue mm-hmm. in its place. And, uh, that it's believed to be quite ancient here in the, or not ancient, but goes back a lot longer than even our country's founding here in North mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. Cause the earliest Europeans that were tilling ground here were, were establishing it. But, but, um, yeah, all that, all that change did not take long. That's fascinating to me is 70 years is kind of the idea you can think of there for, for how it, how it, uh, you know how it uh changed to all prairie to no prairie yeah mm-hmm. all prairie to no prairie yeah, yep yep so nick always likes to to uh um ask this question as we wrap up every oh you're gonna interview. have me ask it i got yeah. one question oh, yeah. for oh, yeah. Karen yeah, yeah. Here. All right. here on the refuge you guys are working with iowa state university on uh filter strips Oh, the runoff pra- prairie strips. Prairie yeah. strips. Now, mm-hmm. tell me what, how that's going and what you've seen, you know, since yeah. they started this pro- so, project. So, yeah, yeah, the prairie strips project started here at Neil Smith um, uh, with some Iowa State researchers came in. They wanted to look at um, taking an agricultural field and planting prairie strip a prairie strip across the not not like down the waterway, but across the gradient of the. Uh, the slope um and so the contour so, yeah yeah so um so we helped them you know devise these seed mixes and and we've had uh, we've been working with them since i think 2005 mm. <laughs> even before i was here um but um so these prairie strips turns out they're very good at the slowing the runoff of the you know the soil the nutrients the water everything um it kind of stops that from from moving down slope and as well it has this you know at least at least provides some cover for some species and then you got the the pollinators that will use it and um yeah just all all kinds of benefits so, so. With, with those do you have <clears throat> species that you find are a little more effective i imagine species with deeper roots like Oh, lead plant and compass plant and big blue stem, but um, well, they're just doing a mix, so it's okay. just it's a, a mix of you know grasses and forbs, um, and I think it's it's more the you know the generally available ones that people use in CRP. So what are they uh, finding so. by doing this? What's what's it doing to nitrates or water quality? Um, it's it's done a lot to increase water quality. They they had. Um, had these flumes set up to collect the water at the base of the toe slope. Uh, um, so they, 
they do use different proportions of the prairie in these different watersheds and some were you know had no prairie as a you know the control I guess and then there was also all prairie um but uh the ones with no prairie of course you see that and there's just after a rain event especially a, a big rain event it would just be sediment just collected at the bottom and then you could just see the, all the 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 soil that had run off yeah and then they but compared to any of the percentages i think of of the prairie um prairie strips across it it, there was much less i mean that's just what you can visualize Mm -hmm. i'm sure they have numbers and and statistics and all kinds of things but you could really visualize that um it was clear water coming out not this muddy stuff so Hmm. um it made a huge difference and now this is this program is part of the um uh, conservation programs that people can put in through NRCS, and yeah. so people are doing this on private land, or farmland, all over, all over the country. So, can do you think we can get the big farmers to do that with GPS? You know how they're going to go around the hill when uh, they don't you know, want to do that. I, I don't know so enough we, about that. We have part to give incentives there for yeah, them to do that, yeah, right? Yeah. You know. And the, and they did have they do have researchers working on that aspect of it of, of you know working with um, the, the society. And how, so how, your big renters, farm ground farmers, that they, they don't want to really want to mess with that, do they? I, I don't, don't think so. I don't know enough, yeah. <laughs> enough about yeah. that part of it. So well, I, and I think you know what Carol said as far as we got to incentivize it to to yeah. provide that motivation and. And, um, you know, landowners ought to, you know, have the say too. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if it's your ground, you know, again, talk about our good friend, Doug Duran, nothing parties like a rental. Uh, That's, (laughs) that's, uh, that's uh, part of, you know, you have that power. If you're the landowner, you can say, Hey, I want some of these conservation practices being done on my, on my ground for, for soil quality, water quality, and, and of course, habitat value as well. So Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I think it's, great point that brings up and i'm glad that neil smith is is stepping up to help provide the data yeah to uh hopefully you know back the movement uh changing to that so mm-hmm. yeah that's great well let's uh let's get to nick's question here nick always likes to wrap up every podcast with uh this question it's a great question this is uh, uh one that that we can look into the future a little bit and um but I'm going to add a little like twist to Nick's question. So Nick, go ahead and ask your question. And before you answer his question, I'm going to add the twist. Karen. Uh Yeah. So, um, man, I I wanted to give some, like some like spoof question and I can't even think of one. Uh, but, uh, if you could change one thing about conservation or prairie or people's understanding of prairie or maybe something about Neil Smith, if you could change anything in the world to do with it, uh, what it, at a snap of a finger, what Does would you Does this change? have to be a real thing that could actually be done or just a dream thing? Yeah. yeah it could be a dream thing. thing. Yeah. Because so that, I, and that gets at, that gets at my, <laughs> so that gets at my twist. I'm glad you asked that. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to say what you think a realistic outlook is. Okay. And then, you know, with Nick's question, your ideal outlook as yeah. to the future wow. for Prairie. So what I would like to happen, 
Okay. Well, I, I mean, I always say this, if I could, if I had a magic wand, I, I would love to get it weirded of all the invasive species, but mm. that's, you know, that's, that's never going to happen. And it, those species are here. They're going to stay here. We're not going to get rid of them. So, you know, just living with them is, and managing them but um i mean i think that people are a lot of it has to do with people i mean just Mm -hmm. the future of prairie is in people's hands so so um one of the things about iowa that i think is really special is we have um the iowa prairie network is Mm-hmm. is uh, an organization of people who love prairie. And if you go to North or South Dakota, I don't think they have an organization like that. Mm. They have a lot more prairie. And I think people really value what is rare. That's, that's my conclusion. Yeah, <laughs> um, so because yeah. prairie is so rare, it's special here and a lot of people appreciate it. And you know, if it were more common, then, um, you know, maybe people wouldn't appreciate it so much, but I just still, we, we still need more (laughs) prairie. I'm not saying it's good that uh, that prairie is rare. Um, so (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) That's definitely a bad thing. Um, but I think just because, uh, you know, that we need to get the, somehow get convinced people that prairie is important, um, you know, we, we talked about the, all the benefits with erosion and that kind of thing. But another thing that we didn't really talk about was, um, carbon sequestration because yeah. prairie, oh, yeah. prairie is great at taking carbon out of the air and storing it underground. And as long as you don't plow it up again, it, it stays, yeah. stays we there. We actually just interviewed recently someone who works with carbon credits. Oh, okay. I'm fascinated on how those go. Yeah. So, I mean, just, and, and even if it's not, I mean, I personally, I don't care what prairie does for us. I just appreciate prairie because it's beautiful and, you know, there's lots of nice things out there. So I just wish more people would appreciate that and, um, and value prairie for, Mm. for what it is and, and, you know, try to, try to build back more prairie, protect the prairie that we have left. You said one of the best things that has ever been said on this podcast while you were talking there, you said prairie is in the people's hands. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is it what we think and, and what we go off. Um, yeah. And, you know, and the thing is, it always has been. And, and even before the white settlers came, the people were part of the prairie. Um, yeah. They and you know, and they managed the prairie, they burned the prairie yeah. and, and, um, yeah. Both. So it was just... Well, and, and, uh, you know, I like what you said too, as far as we have this tendency to value things that are rare, but it's important. We hope that prairie doesn't stay rare. We hope prairie becomes, you know, dominant here on the landscape mm-hmm. again someday. And it's important when that happens that when somebody says, you know, I hear this, quite often from people that don't have a conservation perspective. They'll be, man, look at all that overgrown land over there, all those trees. Mm-hmm. Look at, you know, look at all that, that grass there. That'd be good, for, you know, farm ground, or that'd be good for development. Or, And when they say, man, look at all that, look at that, all that overgrowth, our answer should be good. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. good. Uh, as Aldo Leopold said, um, there's some people that value the blank spaces on maps and there's some people that do not. And 
And uh, we should all strive to be the people that value the blank spaces on the maps, the spots that aren't developed, the spots that haven't been tilled, and uh, and not just be there when it's rare, be there when it's dominant again, and and support it and uh, protect it. And uh, that's what's going on here at Neil Smith. And we hope that hope that that continues. And we're so thankful for you uh, joining in. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Please remember this podcast is presented by Hoxie Native Seeds right there in Linville, Iowa. You can go to hoxynativeseeds.com and you can find all sorts of different mixes from backyard pollinator mixes or backyard prairie mixes to uh, big CRP plantings or maybe you want a hunting mix or whatever it is that you want. We are here to get more prairie on the ground. So go to hoxynativeseeds.com or you could go to theprairiefarm.com and you can find more of our backyard mixes and so forth there as well. And uh, we thank you so much for tuning in each and every episode. Please, if you have not yet given us a five-star review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do that. You might be wondering, why do podcasters always ask for that? What that does is when people look at your podcast and they see that you have uh, a lot of good reviews there, like, hey, this must be a pretty legit show. It sounds good. It has good information. I think I'm going to spend my drive listening to those guys. And so then Apple do that. and Spotify will start recommending your podcast to other people. And uh, Kent, you mind if I wrap us up? Yeah. The And the reason that that is a big deal is because then more people get an education yes. and uh, information on prairie and that is the whole thing because prairie is in people's hands and conservation happens one mind at a time